copy of the scriptures to 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. Page 992 in the Pew Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14, page 992 in the Pew Bible. The world needs objective truth, absolute truth. During a major White House scandal a few years ago, a lawyer for a certain politician was asked by a reporter, has your client told us the whole truth? The lawyer responded by saying, the truth is what is in that deposition unless we make a deal with the prosecutor and say something else. Which means for him, the truth is what is convenient, whatever is convenient at that time. Unfortunately, this is not only true for some lawyers, but it's a common theme for many people throughout the world. However, when it comes to being a beacon of truth, the church is called to stand tall and shine bright as it illumines the truth of the gospel throughout the world. As God's house, the church is called to protect the truth. But it was precisely at this point where the church at Ephesus was failing miserably. And the major indictment was that a part of the leadership was teaching wrong doctrine and blaspheming, which means the church's reputation and ability to make an impact in their community was suffering. We look around the five boroughs of New York City and we can understand what that looks like. While the situation would be much worse if there were no churches, imagine that, if there were no churches in the five boroughs, how much better it could be if we were much more faithful to the word of God, much more faithful in our ministries, much more faithful in our relationships to tell people why we're changed to tell people why God keeps us, why God loves us, because it's of his own free will, not because we're good people, because God from eternity past said, I am going to do something for people so that they would be able to know who I am and come to me and have eternal life out of his choosing, and we turn around and we praise him for that. That simple 21-second explanation can change the dynamic of somebody's life. It can change people's thinking. To, let, to allow them to see outside of themselves and say, you know what? I need to look into this because what I'm doing is not working. And we pray for them, and we love them. We want to be faithful. But unfortunately, there are too many unfaithful churches um, in the area of the five boroughs. Whether it's self-appointed apostles and bishops uh, prophesying over people's life falsely every other week, or megachurches with their $100,000, $500,000 lines that you need to give to if you want this super-duper mega-blessing from God. How corrupt is that? And our reputation is further hampered because of this. 
When the church fails to hold up the standard of truth and righteousness handed down to us through the word of God, the city, the state, the nation, the world suffers. So bear with me as I take time to share what the word of God says concerning the role that the church plays when it comes to the truth. My two points for today's sermon are the church, a pillar and buttress of the truth, and the Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Follow along as I read the holy word of God, which is the most important thing you will hear today. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness towards us. We thank you that you have given us what we uh, do not deserve. And since you have taken the time and you have chosen men to take the time to tell us how we ought to behave in the household of God, let us choose to follow your instructions. And I ask you personally to help me to preach this clearly and accurately. Amen. Point number one, the church, a pillar and buttress of the truth. As servants of God, we may have the best plans laid out, but God's plans may differ. What may look like the greatest act of service that you can do right now may not be what God would have you to do right now. What would have been greater than the Apostle Paul showing up in Ephesus immediately to help Timothy straighten out those false teachers and those troublemakers? But just in case he was delayed providentially, he wanted Timothy to know that he had not forgotten about him or the church. So in verse 14a, Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon. This was Paul's hope. Because as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Timothy was a young pastor. And sometimes Christians will give young pastors a hard time. Yes, Christians. Faithful churchgoers who show up week after week, sometimes just above the young pastor. Your sermon's too long. The church is too hot. The bathrooms are dirty. How come you don't answer my text? Right? <laughs> However, the problems that this church was facing were much more serious in nature. They pertain to uh, having a lack of true doctrine in certain areas and an absence of righteous living by some who call themselves Christians within that church. The Apostle Paul didn't want Timothy to panic as if he had changed his mind. But when you're a pastor, there are so many variables that can alter your schedule. You never know what's going to happen from moment to moment. At any time, you can receive that phone call and your plans change drastically. 
For the Apostle Paul, he could have been detained by the Sanhedrin and thrown in prison at any moment. Or he could end up shipwrecked on his way to see Timothy. Or he could have a vision in the night of someone telling him to come over to our city and help us, which is what happened to him at another occasion. Whatever the case, he wanted Pastor Timothy to know how to carry out his pastoral duties and how the church should function until he got there. In the meantime, so in verses 14b to 15, Paul says, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The household of God is where God is worshiped corporately in spirit and in truth by true believers. The household of God is where Jesus manifests his special presence and walks in the midst of his people, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1, and has them manifest their gifts as a blessing to one another by the power of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That's one of the distinctions of church membership. We are making a commitment slash promise to number one, be here and use our gifts to help one another worship God to the fullest. And number two, we're making a commitment to be here to help one another overcome the tribulations the trials of this world. And number three, we're making a commitment to be here, to restore one another, so that if anyone is caught in any transgression, those who are spiritually mature can help them recover and reconnect with a spirit of gentleness. To be here for one another is incredibly biblical. From almost the beginning, when Cain asked God, Am I my brother's keeper? The answer from scripture is yes, you are. Cain got it wrong and paid the price for it. The phrase one another itself comes from the Greek word alalon, which means one another, each other, mutually, reciprocally. And out of the roughly 100 times that it's mentioned in the New Testament, approximately 59 times, the phrase one another is commanding us on how or how not to relate to one another. Some of us have heard of the phrase one anothering, and that forms to, uh, 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 it works to form the basis of what true covenantal uh, community looks like, Christian community looks like, and it has a direct impact on our witness to the world. As Jesus says in John chapter 13 and verse 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle and then afterward the temple was named the house or habitation of God because there the symbol of God's divine presence resided. According to Exodus chapter 23, among other places, that's the place that people brought their best, their best offerings, their best sacrifices. When you get to the new covenant, the people of God are called to bring their best. They are called to bring themselves as living sacrifices before a holy God who knows our thoughts, who will judge us for every idle word. We are called to come into his house with a pure heart 
making up for wrongs that we have committed to others, learning to forgive when others have wronged us, casting away pride and greed, coming before him recognizing that we are only vessels and everything that he has given us, it just comes here and then goes out to someone in need. And we will see that further on. Having been born again by grace alone, through faith alone, in God's Son, we have been adopted into his family by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are eternal brothers and sisters in Christ. Just that fact alone calls for us to make a commitment uh, to one another. And this includes forgiving one another and making up with one another. This includes going out of your way for one another. As Henry read from Acts chapter 2 last week, we saw how those new converts spent their time and even their treasures to bless one another. That, that's the amazing thing about that. Those are new converts. Starting in verse uh, chapter 42 of Acts 2, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of breads, bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. In chapter 42, they were, it was the breaking of the bread, speaking of communion. And they didn't stop there, but they went further to come and visit one another, to invite people into their homes and, and share a meal together to get into their lives that they, may, that they may pour into their lives what God has poured into them. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, and that is love. That is the very definition and picture of love. The whole of scripture concerning sacrificial covenantal commitment can be summed up in three verses. In Hebrews chapter 10, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25, we are told, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, because he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Right? How do we stir up one another to love and good works? Number one, by being here in order to do it. Number two, by asking, how are you doing? How is your walk? Walk. How can I pray for you? Do you need anything? And the love that you have for others is contagious. They learn what a Christian looks like. They learn that it's not just two hours on a Sunday morning and then go live for me. But no, it's sacrificial. It's a covenantal commitment because God has changed me and God wants to use me. In verse 25, not neglecting 
to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are lovingly warned not to forsake the assembling of ourselves, especially as the day of Jesus' return gets closer. This warning is not a legalistic command that you better go to church or else God is not going to love you anymore. No, it's given out of love because the world is growing more and more evil and violent. There are so many ways that we are divided as we get ourselves into the world and we stay away from God's people, not just Sunday morning, but we stay away for 166 out of the 168 hours of the week and we're enraptured by the world and we wonder why we don't have peace. And we wonder why we're so divisive. And we wonder why so many churches are suffering from disunity. The word of God, out of love, says, as Jesus' return gets closer, you have to draw closer to the people of God, to the refuge that God has given to the people of God, to come together on the first day of the week. It's not like the Sabbath, which was on the last day where you just took rest, but it's on the first day that you honor the Lord. That's his day that we get ready for the next six. That we come together and we put on the armor of God and we go forth when we leave here. Okay, all right, I recognize it's not just about me and my little life. It's about the eternal life that God has given me. It's about seeing um, how does what I do today affect the next 10,000 years? How does these little arguments that I have affect the next 10,000 years? They don't. They don't. So that... Every time we come across someone who disagrees with our little ideology, our little political stance, our little social event, and they disagree, does that matter in the end? And how can I represent God through this? That's it. That's what matters to God. This warning is given out of God's love because he knows and he shares with us from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read that in a minute, but I want you to think. Out of everything that Paul could have said before he was beheaded, beheaded and left this earth to be with the Lord of glory, he gives us this warning in his last letter in the Bible from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse, verses 1 through 6. He says, but understand this. That in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, Swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Let me go back and read verses 14 and 15 of 1 Timothy chapter 3 in full. I want to read it in full so we can catch the context. It makes one sentence, these two verses. He says, 
I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. If you do not have the church standing as a pillar and buttress of the truth, there's a good chance that even some of the lambs, the impressionable Christians, will get swept up in the movements of the culture, and that's exactly where the enemy wants you to be. So ingrained in the ways of society, including politics, that it's hard to tell the difference between you and the community activists, between the church and the community health center, even between the pastor and a motivational speaker. So many of us have hearts of compassion and want to help the hungry, the sick, the oppressed, and the hurting. But if we're not careful, we can end up exalting the physical over the spiritual needs of the very people we're trying to help. How do we do that? By our speech. Without even realizing it, through our speech, we can make Christ optional because sin is no longer mentioned. It's too offensive to them, so we hold back. We hold back. But history has shown whenever the church has joined itself to the world in support of a movement, the gospel is put on the back burner. You may not start out that way. You may say, I'm going to feed them, and then I'm going to bring in the gospel. Sounds great, but I want you to think about this for a minute. In John chapter 6, Jesus fed thousands, 5,000 men, not including the women and children. What a ministry, some would say. But what did they come for? Food, right? They came for, for food, especially the second day. They came for food. Period. Jesus fed them the first day, but the second day when he gave them the gospel, things changed. When he fed them the first day, they loved him. But something changed when he gave them the gospel. In John chapter 6, verses 49 and 50, he told them, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But I am the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Then he tells them, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. But what did he mean? You must place your faith in my sacrificial death on the cross where I gave my body and shed my blood as a ransom for sin. That's the gospel. He started out with 12, and one of them was a demon. He fed thousands, and he was the man. Then he gave them the gospel. How many ended up staying? 12, including the one who had the demon. There was a purpose for him. But yet we still think that we can make it happen through man-centered means and worldly movements. It does not work that way. Jesus said, Men and women, 
love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That's the crux. You may be sharing the gospel with somebody on your job, and they have all kinds of reasons why they won't come. But it comes down to what, jo- what Jesus said in John chapter 3. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. If I accept what you're saying, then I have to change how I'm living. And I'm not ready to do that, so I have to throw everything else at you. And they will have us going on rabbit, tra- tra- rabbit trails, uh, uh, studying books and history and studying other religions, trying to get them to where we are when they just don't want the light. It exposes their dark hearts. I'm not saying that there is no benefit to trying to understand someone's culture, background, religion, whatever, but what I'm saying is don't go down that rabbit trail for days upon days, and there's still, you can answer every question, every question, and still it's the darkness of men's heart that will keep them away from Christ. However, we're not left without an answer. Because Jesus told us what to do. He said, go, make disciples. What does that mean? It means you make a commitment to sit with someone and teach them heart to heart about the kingdom of God and the sinfulness of man and the hope we have in Jesus Christ all the while loving them as you love yourself. And if you have the resources to help them physically, that's great. That's the story of the Good Samaritan, by the way. If God has placed someone in your life along your path that you can help physically, by all means, help them physically. But that's too hard. It is so much easier to send out a Facebook Uh, a a text or a a, a tweet or whatever and to rant to our like-minded group than to sit with someone and teach them about the eternal life that God gives, about the peace and joy we have in Christ, about how I used to be out there uh, idolizing everything else that I thought could change my life. But Christ is the answer. But that's too hard for us. But that's what Jesus said. That's how you change lives. That's how that person is able to go and change somebody else's life. That's how that person is able to go back to his family and tell them, and hopefully down the road, their wife, their children, their husband will be able to see the transformation that the gospel brings, that only the gospel brings. Everything else is temporary. Everything else is here today. It looks like it works. And then after a while, that person is right back to their old Self, sharing your life, one anothering with someone takes sacrifice. It also takes trust. Trusting that what Jesus told us to do actually works. Jesus trusted his father because in that same chapter where he fed them, John chapter 6, when you get to verse 37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. To the Christian, those words are comforting. But to the unbeliever, that's offensive. There has to be another way. That's too narrow. But it's the truth. And the world screams back, 
what about my truth? And the Bible screams back. The church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul gives us two metaphors fused together. In the first metaphor, the household of God is seen as a massive pillar holding up and displaying before men and angels the saving truth of the gospel. In the second metaphor, the household of God is seen as a reinforcing buttress. A buttress is not a building's foundation, but part of its supporting structure. It helps to stabilize the walls and pillars of a large building. In the same way, the church is in the world to hold the truth steady, collectively and spiritually, as we stand together in opposition to every form of false teaching and false believing. We are the lamp and light of truth in a dark world. It's similar <clears throat> to being on a small boat in the middle of the ocean at night, where you can't see anything for miles. As the fear builds up within you because you realize you're lost, as you continue looking, you see a small light from afar, a very small light. But as you get closer, you recognize the light is coming from a lighthouse. Now joy starts to replace the fear you once had because there is hope that you will be saved. The church is that light in a pitch black world. In a Bible preaching and teaching church, there is a joy that replaces fear <clears throat> because of the hope that the lost will be saved. Someone searching for a true church might ask, how will I know? How will I know when I found a true church that is a pillar and buttress of the truth? You'll know it when you're in a church that has the faithful preaching of the word, the faithful administration of the Lord's Supper and baptism, and the faithful exercise of correction and discipline. This is a church that serves God and people based upon the truth of his word. Of the scriptures. For the, for the Christian uh, coming out of the culture of Ephesus, holding to this truth was critical. The church in Ephesus didn't have screens like we do to idolize, but they certainly had their idols. Much of the Ephesian industry was related to the temple of Artemis, which is also known as the temple of Diana. Craftsmen sold shrines and household images, large ones that you could set up in your home and worship, and smaller ones that you could take along with you as you traveled. And as a people, the Ephesians were very proud of their religious heritage and legends, according to Acts chapter 19. But here's the problem. What if you happen to work as one of these craftsmen, or even one of their protégés or mentees, then you became a member of the way, a.k.a. a Christian. What do you do? You join yourself to the church, the household of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. If your work has been taken away because now you belong to what they considered a cult, the church would try to provide, as we just saw in Acts chapter 2. 
where the Christians were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to other Christians in need. And as you continued to attend the house of God and coming under the hearing of the word of God, you learn how to stand against the lies. You learn how to fight back against the deceptions of the culture. For the Christian coming up in our culture, screens have become a way of life. There are areas where screens are necessary, but way too often it's through their entertainment use that ungodliness has infiltrated almost every aspect of our lives. Since the fall, we love to be entertained. But how far will we go to get it? That's the issue. I'm not saying all entertainment is bad. I can even hear some of you thinking, man, that Pastor Mike is a killjoy. What does he do for fun? Play hide and go seek a Bible verse? Pin the, pin, 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 pin the tail on the scripture? What does he do for fun? And I am not saying that I am against entertainment, but what I am saying is that according to the Bible, our obsession with entertainment is sinful because it's idolatry. And here's the test. Can you go six hours without looking at a screen? Can you restrain yourself from surfing from one thing to the next, to the next, and to the next for even a few hours? From TV shows to Instagram posts to Twitter to Facebook. Uh, and if you think that's not you, the person who cannot take time to do what uh, Christians used to do, to reflect, just to, to ponder. Think about where you are and where you're going. To reflect on where you are and where you used to be. To think about your life and the word of God. Are you where God would have you to be? Are you doing what God would have you to do? We don't take time to just stop and think, who can I call? Who can I encourage? Who can I pray for? Let me make a list of some prayer items that I heard or some prayer items that someone shared with me at the church. Let me reflect on a scripture and hold that throughout the week, that no matter what comes up against me, I can stand on this word. That's what Christians used to do. If you think that's not you, try going without a screen for six hours. Test yourself. Counseling is available. Point number two, point number two, the Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. This won't be as long. In verse 16, the Apostle Paul writes, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, some of you may remember in Acts chapter 19, there was a riot, a riot in Ephesus, where the silversmiths and the craftsmen felt threatened by Paul's missionary work. They made their living by making idols. But Paul taught that, uh, he taught the people that gods made with hands are not gods. And they were angry. They packed the amphitheater and began crying out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They shouted this slogan for so long and for so loud that almost everybody in the city would have heard about it. 
So as Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, he's saying, no. On the contrary, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, Timothy. Teach the people, great is the mystery of godliness. In verse 16, Paul presents the mystery of godliness pertaining to Christ Jesus in six rhythmic lines. It's like an old hymn that's broken up, broken up into two stanzas or verses, each three lines long. Two stanzas, each three lines long. The first stanza says, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels. This refers to his earthly ministry before he ascended. The second stanza says, he was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This refers to the ongoing impact of his ministry after his ascension. The first stanza points to his triumph over the world, the flesh, and the devil, while the second stanza points to his continuous reign over the world, the flesh, and the devil. Ultimately, the entire song sings of the exaltation and glorification of Jesus, our Savior. It starts out by saying he was manifested in the flesh. God the Son had lived in all splendor of his deity from eternity past. Then he became a man, identical to us in his physical body. This is the mystery of the incarnation. God the Son became the God-man. By taking upon himself human flesh and blood, he became one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, also known as the hypostatic union. Then we read he was vindicated by the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit confirmed and proved that Jesus Christ lived a righteous life and was justified because he rose from the dead. If there was even one sin in his life, the offering of his body as a sacrifice for sins would have been a tainted offering and would have been rejected by God the Father. Thus, no resurrection and no salvation. Everyone would have suffered eternal damnation. It's just that serious. And after Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit, he was seen by angels. I believe the reason for mentioning uh, the angels here is to show that the mystery of godliness is known in heaven as well as on earth. Angels sang at the birth of Jesus, ministered to him in his hour of temptation in the wilderness. They guarded his tomb, they attest to his ascension, and they expect his return. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authority, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him, according to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 22. Now we have the second part of the hymn, where Jesus was proclaimed among the nations, meaning all the Gentile peoples of the world. After the, the presentation came the proclamation. Having seen the risen Christ, the apostles preached the risen Christ. There was a time not too long ago when someone would receive Christ and went out and had to tell people, I'm saved. I'm a Christian now. They just couldn't hold it in. Something has changed. Something is different now, especially in the West, right? Now when people receive Christ, they take on a more casual quiet, just Jesus in me existence. This is wrong in at least two areas. First off, 
Christians have been given a directive from Christ. Once again, Jesus said, go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. We see the risen Christ, and we go. When we hear the gospel and believe that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, we go. Secondly, we have received a new nature. We have been changed on the inside so that what's on the inside wants to come outside. What is it to have a new nature? Well, if you could take the nature of a cat and put it inside of a dog, when that dog sees the mailman, he would go, woof. If you could take the nature of a dog and put it inside of a rabbit, that rabbit would say, woof. And when you take the nature from God and put it in someone who is filled with greed and violence and anger and pride, you see a change. You see a new person. He's not trying to be a Christian. He is a Christian. And it comes out. What is inside has to come out. And so because Christians have a directive or commission and a new nature or disposition, the gospel is going to go out to the nations so that the good news about Jesus Christ being the way, the truth, and the life will be proclaimed. Before Jesus' death on the cross and installment of the new covenant, a wall of partition had divided the Jewish and Gentile world. In the temple, there was a, a, a dividing wall that partitioned off the court of the Gentiles from the areas accessible only to the Jews. And that wall revealed the social, religious, and spiritual separation that kept Jews and Gentiles apart. The Jews regarded the rest of mankind as excluded from the covenant mercies of God. However, in Ephesians chapter uh, 2 and verse 14, Paul wrote, For he himself is our peace, who, had, who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Praise the Lord. Because of the cross, that separation is no longer a thing. Now, through the power of God in evangelism, Jesus is believed on in the world. Because we go. There is no reason why you can't speak to someone who does not look like you about the cross of Christ. There is nothing holding you back from crossing the so-called aisle that we have made up because of where we came from, and we will not speak to someone who has a different background, different language, different education level. There's nothing stopping us but our own hearts. Finally, there is no other way and no other truth that leads to God the Father. As a matter of fact, if you trust in Jesus for salvation right here in this part of the world, which is approximately 5,710 miles from Jerusalem, your faith right here is more proof that Jesus is believed on throughout the world. He who is the life and the light has given you life through the light of the gospel. And knowing that Christ is believed on in the world and was received and taken up in glory should cause all of us who believe in him to rejoice. Because it means we who believe will also be received and taken up 
in glory where we will be dwelling with the Lord in his presence until the consummation of all things, when the earthly will no longer be separated from the heavenly. And we who were created for his glory will finally and completely live for his glory forevermore. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father, we owe our lives to you. We owe our everything to you. Because of you, we are here. Because of you, we have a, a, a new heart. We thank you for Jesus, who humbled himself in obedience to you, even to the point of a shameful death on the cross. Therefore, you have received him. And not only did you receive him, receive him, but you highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you for everything. Had he not died on that cross, we would all be lost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.